We're in a series of messages uh, that, that, uh, that we're calling On Earth As It Is In Heaven. And really, the frame of this is just looking at New City Church's vision and values. And last week, we talked about our vision, which is to live as the family of God together, uh, proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel to one another in our city. And we unpack that. These next four weeks, we're going to be kind of talking about the, 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 the pillar values or behaviors that, that really extend that vision to see it go forward. Um, um, so, uh, so this week, we're talking about uh, our first value. We are humbled by grace and depending on the Spirit. That is, that, that God's grace has a, a, a downward trajectory in our life that humbles us. And that is the necessary foundation, really, to, to exist as the church together. Uh, and I, I remember about three years ago, I was uh, doing some doctoral work in Singapore. I was with my, my mentor, and there were 12 of us in this group, and, and we were with Dr. Coleman in Singapore, and he wanted to take us to Singapore because he wanted to take us to a place that the church was alive. He wanted to take us to a place where the church was flourishing, it was growing, and it was healthy. It's not that the church in the United States isn't alive, it's just really alive in Asia right now, especially in Singapore. And I, I, we were sitting in this meeting at this high-rise building around the, this conference table, and the two lead pastors of this huge church walk in, and I'm like, I'm like, okay, here we go. I'm, I'm like ready to take down the goods. Like, I've got this. We're taking this back to the States. This thing's going to blow up. It's going to be great. And my jaw dropped when they told me what their values were. The, the first value that they described was that they valued brokenness. And I'm thinking, what? Like, come on, this would never fly in America. You know, like... You value brokenness, and they begin to unpack the, 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 the truth that, that unless people find themselves as broken, they'll never see the strength of Jesus declared and demonstrated in their life. They'll never see it. And so their, their whole aim was to help people see that we're broken without the Lord and to help them explore those areas maybe that they've shut God out of their lives in. And so, so that's really what I want to aim at today, is I want to unpack this idea of, of, of brokenness and weakness and why it's so crucial it's significant for us as a body to get. So here's our big idea for where we're going today. The kingdom of God is advanced through the platform of our weakness, not our strength. Let me say that one more time. The kingdom of God is advanced through the platform of our weakness and not our strength. So here's how we're going to look at this today. We're going to do a case study on a guy in the Bible named the Apostle Paul. Before his name was Paul, his name was Saul. And we're going to look at that that, ver that version of that guy, and then it's going to lead us to 1 Corinthians 12. So if you've got a Bible, open up to Acts chapter 8. We're going to look at the first three verses. And here's the, here's the point that I, that I want to make from Acts 8, that apart from Jesus, we will build our lives around the wrong kingdom. There is no if, ands, or buts. We'll build it around the wrong kingdom unless Jesus intervenes, unless the Holy Spirit breaks into our lives. So here's what's going on in Saul's life before he meets the Lord. Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, and Saul approved of his, Stephen, uh, Stephen's execution. So what, what was going on here is that uh, the church was growing rapidly, it was flourishing in the city of Jerusalem, flourishing so much that they had to appoint these deacons in Acts chapter 6 to take care of, of, of all the people, especially the widows that were in the city who were being overlooked. And, and so the church is flourishing, you're meeting from house to house, the gospel's going forward, and then, and then Saul comes onto the scene, and here's what he does. He says, there arose on that 
they, a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering into house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So what is Saul doing? Well, Saul is going from house to house. The church was gathering in these houses as a house church kind of model, and they would get in the synagogue together in worship as well. But they were gathering from house to house, sharing everything, sharing food. Day to day, the scriptures say. Well, Saul gets it in his mind that this is some little cult, and he's going he's gonna to extinguish these guys from the face of the planet. And so they stoned Stephen, one of the, one of the first deacons of the church, just to make a point. Just to make a point, he is, he is a complete maniac. He's a lunatic. He's going nuts on the church. And here's the thing I don't want you to miss. He has the same Bible as Jesus. Did you hear that? Saul, when he was killing Christians, had the same Bible as Jesus. So what's the point I'm making? The point I'm making is this. Unless the Spirit makes our hearts alive to the Word, we'll build the wrong kingdom every single time. And, uh, you know, before we move on from this, and we just kind of look at the B.C. days of Saul's life before he came to Christ, I want to press in for a second and help us maybe apply this and examine ourselves a little bit here. Because um, if we cannot, as Christians or people that are on this spiritual journey, if we cannot identify with the Paul-like tendencies of our own hearts, we might be deceived. And, and what I mean by that is the tendency in each of us to build the wrong kingdom. The tendency in each of us to prioritize the wrong things. You know, what, what you see is that, you know, maybe we're not physically against Jesus, but maybe our words and our thoughts could easily be anti-gospel, anti-grace, if we're not walking in a spirit-dependent relationship with Jesus. So instead of encouraging one another, as long as it's called today, we tear each other to pieces. Instead of living at peace with one another at all costs, we make war. Instead of believing the best about one another, we cynically assume the worst. This is the heart of Saul that we got to be aware of. This is the heart of Saul that could live in New City Church if not for God's grace. And, you know... The heart of Saul that we got to be aware of is, is to acknowledge the fact that if Jesus doesn't keep me close, if he doesn't help me finish the race, and he doesn't live inside of me, that my flesh will destroy God's work every single time. It'll do it. And so, you know, today in the church, anything can create division, right? That thing you have on your face, that can create a division, right? It has, it is, you're seeing it, right? I mean, an election, that could cause division. That could wreak havoc on the church. And people can preach this word right here and say whatever they want after it and divide the church. You know, anything from an approach to, to racial injustice and reconciliation, that can divide the church. All of these things that we need to walk humbly in and for God to keep us in unison as a body and really in communion uh, with him. So, you know, the thing that we've got to do is live in sobriety, that it could be us at any moment. That's what God's grace does, is it humbles us. Last week, I was um, with a mentor of mine. I'm with this group of six pastors where we're journeying together uh, for about two years together over a series of retreats, and, and, and uh, Elliot is this guy that's leading us through this. And uh, 
before we left our time together, he's like, oh, I just have one more question I want to ask you guys. And we're like packing up, getting ready to go. He's like, you know, uh, are you aware of how you struggle with self-deception? I'm like, whoa, man. I mean, I thought we were saying goodbye here. I mean, this is like a whole nother level here. And, and so I had, to, I had to think to myself, what, what would it mean for me to be deceived? And I want to invite you to ask the same question. How do you struggle with self-deception? And, and, and what self-deception is, is it's that space in your life where you say, I would never struggle with that. I would, I would never do that. That could never come from my mouth. I could never see myself in that situation. And as I started to think about the landmines, I started to think about the places in my life. I, I, could, I could never get a divorce or have an extramarital relationship. Oh, really, Ryan? You can never do that? You know, I, you know I, my marriage is as strong and as good as it's ever been in the almost 13 years we've been married. But it's only because God's grace has been holding it together every single moment. Amen? That's how marriage works. You know, I could never embezzle money from the church or, or steal or cheat on my taxes. You know, I have integrity with money. I give. I love to give joyfully and generously. But it's only because God's grace has made me that way. I wasn't that way before I knew Jesus. I could never become a drug or alcohol addict. I could never find myself in prison. Let me just say this. Do you know that we are all one decision away from being in prison? Well, I mean, one, one thing that you do wrong. One, one text that you send, one internet search on your computer, we are all just one decision away from terrible consequences for our sin. That's the reality for anybody in this room and anybody in the city, and really anybody in prison right now, right? I mean, that's the reality. And when you live that way and you know that, it humbles you. It humbles you because you don't see yourself as better than other people. And that is the heartbeat that we have desired for this church from day one, that God's grace would humble us. So the question I have that I want you to ask yourself, maybe jot it down in a note on your phone, come back to it. Where are the anti-gospel behaviors in your life right now? Where are the places where you are really, they're landmines for you. You could easily become deceived. You could easily fall into that trap of thinking you're beyond that. Because that's where the enemy will seek to take you out. And uh, by God's grace, may we be a church that's aware of those things and not afraid to confront them. Amen? Second thing, God's grace humbles and breaks us. So we're going to look at we're going to look at the fall of Paul, all right? We're going to look at him here. We're going to see what happens in his life and how God breaks him. So I'm going to, I'm going to take a, a few selections out of Acts chapter 9 here, starting in verse 1. So Saul has just approved of Stephen's execution. He's been holding the jackets while people have been throwing the rocks. And he's been ravaging people's houses and dragging them to prison through the streets of Jerusalem. That's who he is, right? And then God breaks him. Here's what he does. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So that if he found anyone belonging to the way, in other words, if he found anyone following Jesus, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He's looking for legal authority to get, these, to get Christians off the face of the planet. That's what he's doing. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And he heard a voice 
saying to him, and this is Jesus speaking to Paul. Jesus has ascended to heaven. He's at the right hand of the Father. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. So what you see happening here is Saul has just met Jesus about as close to face-to-face as you can, right? On the road to Damascus as he's going to, to kill some more Christians, incarcerate them, do those kinds of things. And, uh, and the Lord meets him and he has a reckoning. And when he encounters God's presence, it blinds him. And I think this is really a metaphor to show that he's been blind all along, right? He's been blind all along. He's been having the same Bible, you know, trying to build the kingdom, but he's been blind all along. And, and then the Lord sends this guy named Ananias to him. As you can imagine, you can read it in Acts chapter 9, Ananias is a little apprehensive as a Christian man to go out and meet with the guy that has been dragging Christians to prison and, and watching them be murdered, right? He, he's a little apprehensive, but nevertheless, he trusts the Lord. And verse 15, but the Lord said to him, Ananias, um, he says to Paul, Go, Jesus says, go for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry out my name before the Gentiles and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. You see, Jesus has a plan for Paul's life and it's to suffer, to bring him glory. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on Paul, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus has appeared to you on the road which you came as sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. See, that's what Saul was missing was the Spirit of God. See, this thing, this thing is nothing without God's Spirit. And this thing can divide the church. This thing can, can really destroy the kingdom of God unless the Spirit fills us as we read it, as we study it, and as we use it in community and as we proclaim it to the world. And, and, and something different happens here because what does Paul do? He, something like scales fall off of his eyes, he eats some food, and what's the first thing he goes and does? He gets back to work. He starts preaching the real word of God. That's what he does, and so that's what you see happening. And I just want to say this, that, that it's not a matter of if, but when we are confronted by our brokenness, by our frail human condition, by our weakness, and by the things we don't want anybody to know anything you know, about us in that regard. And so, you know, how did Paul get so far off track? How did he, how was he persecuting God's people, you know, the children of Israel? How was he, how was he doing that? Because each and every one of us, you know, at some point or at many points in our lives, we'll find ourselves far from the Lord. Some of you in here right now, if you're honest, you're not very close to Jesus right now. You're still showing up and going through the motions and the Lord is meeting you in that, um, but you're not real close to the Lord right now, or maybe you've never known the Lord. Well, th- this is kind of a reminder for us that we can get off the, the grid, we can get off the skids pretty quickly, if not for God's spirit. And, and what we're doing is we're trying to hold on for dear life, and we're thinking, if I could just hold my life together, if I could just keep it together long enough, but we, we find ourselves slipping. And the kindest thing that God can do to us in those moments is break us, to let us be broken so that he can put us back together. And we see that in Saul's life. Saul's at the pinnacle of his career, right? Doing the absolute thing that dishonors God. I want to read two passages to you about, the, about um, really the awareness of brokenness and what it does in the life of the believer. 
first one comes from Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15. And I want, as I read this, I want you to pay attention to where God dwells, where he lives, all right? Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Here's what the Lord says. He says, I dwell in the high and holy place. That's not hard for us to imagine, is it? He dwells in the high and holy place. He dwells in heaven. He dwells outside of time and space, right? He dwells there. We get that. We think about that. But look where he also dwells. I also dwell with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So God dwells in two places, in heaven and in broken people. That's what he's saying. I dwell in two places, in heaven and in broken people. So the thing that we avoid with, at all costs in our lives, to be broken and to be weak before the Lord and others, is the very place that God wants to take us to give us more of himself, to give us more of his strength. Secondly, I want to look at Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is a, is a, is a psalm that David wrote out of the most broken place in his life. He, he, had, um, he had had an affair with Bathsheba. They, she was pregnant. Um, and then he, he goes and he has Uriah, her husband, murdered to cover up things so that, so that he can get married to Bathsheba. And it's, it's just this mess. And, and, uh, and Nathan comes to him and he, he says, you are the man, David. You're the man. You're the sinner. And he just finds himself in this completely explo- exposed and broken place. And that's where Psalm 51 comes from. And here's what he says in Psalm 51. Here's what he prays. The sacrifices of God are broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. That's a worst case scenario moment for us, isn't it? To think about being exposed. Think about those things in your life that maybe other people don't know about. Those things in your life that that you never want to surface, right? That was this moment for David. And the Lord met him right in the middle of it. And what you see that the Spirit does in the life of Christians is he's consistently moving us from brokenness to wholeness. But he doesn't do that in the strength of your flesh. He's not trying to wean you off of needing grace, okay? Did you hear that? The maturity in the life of a believer is not saying, hey, uh, let me be careful how I say this. I sin less and so I need less grace. It's really about an increasing awareness of sin that we have, and an increasing dependency that we realize we really can't do a moment without Jesus speaking for us. And so what, what the Spirit leads us to do, church, is to confront our shadow, our, our broken, secret-keeping, shame-filled hearts. He gives us the power to do that because he takes the sting of sin away through Jesus. There's, there's nothing that could be found out about you that would that would change God's pleasure on your life if you're in Christ. Nothing. And, and what, what has to happen in the life of the Christian to please God is the gospel has to bring us low. It humbles us to be so needy that we can't walk a day without grace. And when the gospel brings you low, it's not so you can just jump back up, it's to keep you low. This is what Paul begins to discover in 2 Corinthians 12. But before we get there, I want to I ask you the question, has God's grace brought you low before? Has it? Has it brought you to a place of exposure and, and weakness and, and maybe sometimes shame? That's not God's plan, but maybe your sin led you there. Has it brought you there? 
Is, is God's grace keeping you low now? Is it keeping you humble now? Roy Hessian in his, his little book, The Calvary Road, and if you have never read this book, pick it up. It's like 100 pages and it'll be the best thing you read all year, I promise. It's absolute gold. Here's what Roy Hessian says. He says, the Lord Jesus cannot live in us fully and reveal himself through us until the proud self within is broken. To be broken means to have no rights before God and man. It does not mean merely surrendering my rights to him, but rather recognizing that I haven't any rights except hell. Let me say that again. When, we, when, we, when, when God saves us, we realize that we have no rights. We surrender our right to be right because we are his. And that changes the way that you live with people. That changes the way that you see yourself. That changes the way that you speak to people, even people that you disagree with, because you realize that you have no rights, that the rights that you had got you hell. But when Jesus saves us, we are servants, humble servants of him because of grace. We serve at his pleasure. And that just that changes you. Are we as a people weak enough to be saved by God and to be used by God to build his kingdom, not ours? That's the question we've got to ask ourselves. So Paul, Paul learned this. He learned it in Acts 9. It's a story we look back and remember, but the beauty of Paul's story is he stayed low. He stayed low. Let's, let's, uh, let's, let's keep going here. We are invited, uh, point three, to extend the kingdom of God through our inability to be awesome. You guys seen the Lego movie? What's the, how's the song go? Who's got it? Everything is awesome. Yeah, right? You got it, right? That's the, that's the thing. And you hear that and you're like, man, what's the little Lego guy's name? What's his name? Uh, somebody, help me out here. Evan, there we go. Uh, yeah, so anyway, he's, uh, he's, uh, he's, you know, he's, you know, he's like just uh, has this like fairy tale kind of life. And you look at it and you're like, that's so unrealistic. But really, when you think about it, that's what we're trying to make our lives to be, right? That's what we're hoping for. But, but the thing is that God doesn't need us to be awesome because Jesus is awesome. So God's, God's whole plan for your life is to keep you needy and dependent of Jesus. I mean, think about this. Whenever you go uh, to, to look up uh, you know, a new physician or a doctor, how many of you get on your computer and you, and you Google um, you know, a dermatologist that kind of just barely graduated and barely passed the licensing exams? How many times do you do that? You, you don't do that, right? Or how many times do you buy something on Amazon that has a one-star review of like a thousand people did that? You don't buy that, right? You don't buy that. We are so conditioned to, to carry out this, this idea of excellence and awesomeness into our faith that it inadvertently leads us away from dependence on Jesus. And we are confused when we need grace because we think that we've done something wrong. God has designed you to be dependent of him, to be dependent on him, to, to, to need him with everything that you are. And, and Paul, Paul discovers this the hard way, and he discovers it through prayer. So what's happening in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, which is the chapter we're going to look at before this, is the church at Corinth was trying to show that Paul was like a super apostle and prophet. They didn't want a weak pastor, right? They didn't want this guy that was like a pushover, right? And so they're like, you know, Paul's like rattling off, you know, like, hey, you know, I was shipwrecked three times and swam across the Mediterranean Sea, you know, like he's rattling off all this stuff and he's telling them, hey, this is foolishness, but if you really want to know, I've been in prison, I've been stoned, I've been beaten, you know, he's, he's telling them all these, all of these things that he's done that should, 
you know, prove his uh, or authenticate his, you know, uh, role in the church. But he says that it's all foolishness. And that's where we pick up in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. He says, I must go on boasting, though there's nothing to be gained by it. I, he said, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. And then he starts speaking of himself in third person here. He says this, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, God knows. And I know this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my, on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weakness. Though I should wish to boast, I will not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he, than he sees in me or hears from me. So what's happening here, you know, is, is the church is trying to get Paul to parade his credentials, you know, like put his diploma up on the wall, show them like how great he is. And he says, guys, it's pointless because that's not what built the kingdom. That's not how the kingdom advances, right? It's pointless. And so he's talking about this experience he has. I won't get on the rabbit trail of exploring what the third heavens were and, and paradise and all that, but basically he had a really close encounter with the Lord. And, and the Lord told him some things, literally un, unutterable utterances is what he told him, right? Things that he can't say, things that he can't share. And uh, he's, he's sharing that with the church. And they're like, you know, here's what we would do in America, okay? If we had Paul here today, we, first thing we do, we'd get a book deal, okay? We get a book deal, we get that thing shipped out, and then we do a speaking tour all around the country. And we would plant churches after Paul spoke because he's our guy. And, Paul, and, and what we're seeing what we're seeing Paul, you know, kind of lead the church through in Corinth is that it's foolishness because it leads to celebrating and praising Paul, not Jesus. And the only thing great and awesome about Paul is Jesus. And so he goes on to talk about this. Um, <clears throat> he goes on to talk about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, through this encounter that he has with the Lord where he asks him to remove this weakness that he has. Uh, verse 7. He says, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, his experience with the Lord, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, with insults, with hardships, with persecutions, calamities. For when I'm weak, I'm strong. See, Paul was content with all of those things that came from following Jesus because he sensed a, a, a depth of strength and confidence that he gained from God in the middle of the, the calamities and the persecutions and all that stuff that was so worth it. And our question is, has we experienced that depth of love and care from the Lord before? But so many times we're so quick to hit the eject button when things don't go our way that we miss out on the strength of God that's to be displayed through the weakness. And, and, and what this what the world needs, what Lawrenceville needs, what Gwinnett County needs is people that are 
finding their strength in their desperate need and longing for Jesus. Doesn't need another Ryan Johnson 2.0 or you know, whatever. We don't, we don't need us. We need the Lord. That's clear, right? Has there ever been a time that's been, that's been more clear that we can't figure it out on our own, okay? Right? We need the Lord to be our, to be our strength. You know? And so what does Paul do? He has this thorn in his flesh. We're not real sure what it is. Some people, some people say that it's this uh, kind of emotional torment that he has in his mind for all the things that he did to Christians back in the day, right? He killed people. Right? He's got this thorn in his flesh. Some people think that it's a, a physical ailment. So there was something that he couldn't shake that was, that was holding him back. And in his mind, he just thought, man, if this thing was just gone, I could do more for God's kingdom. We all have a thorn in our flesh. Some of us have a thorn bush in our flesh, right? We've all got these thorns, these things that we think are setting us back. We think, if I could just get past this, then life would be better. I want to flip the script on you a little bit this morning. Is it possible that that's the very thing that God wants to use to advance his kingdom in your heart and in this city? Is it possible? Not only do I think it's possible, I think it's probable because we know what Romans 8, 28 says. It says this. It says that God is working all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. So we have a rock solid assurance of what? That whatever is happening in your life right now is God's plan and he's going to use it. You have a rock solid promise. And so there's nothing that's occurring in your life right now that's outside of his design, or that's outside of his sovereign care and control in your life right now. And that, that even as painful as that is to say, because there's a lot of painful things that are happening right now in this church and in this world. But you know what's worse? God not being in control of it. So we have this promise that he's in control of it. But you... And I will never choose brokenness on our own. It's just not something we'll seek, right? I, I, I don't know the last person that just said, hey, man, I just, Lord, a prayer you never want to pray, Lord, break me, right? <laughs> that's, a prayer, that's a dangerous prayer. It's a good prayer, but it's a dangerous prayer because he's, he'll, he'll do that. We'll never seek it out on our own. And just one more quote from Roy Hessian here. He says this, a man never comes to the position of brokenness on his own, but God shows him the divine lamb on Calvary's cross putting away his sin by the shedding of his blood. So God shows us our brokenness by showing us the fact that Jesus had to be broken so that we could be made whole. That's the gospel right there. I mean, if you ever get to a place where you think, you know, I'm not really that broken, then why did Jesus have to go to the cross? So it humbles us when we see him. When we think about the cross and the sacrifice, brokenness and thorns and thistles and the pain that we experience in this world and the tears that we experience and the sickness and the mental anguish that we endure are all results of the fall. And these are the enemy's tools. But just like what happened with Joseph and his brothers, what, what the enemy, what you meant for evil, God uses for good, right? That, that's what happens in the life of the Christian. And so I, I want to share this with you from, from Charles Spurgeon. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a uh, sermon that he preached on... Uh, Job's resignation, and he says this, he says, Oh, dear friend, when thy grief presses you to the very dust, worship there. When you get to the bottom of whatever it is you've been searching for, whatever happened to you, and you find that it's not what you hoped it would be, or when you find that life is just overwhelming, you've got no other choice but to worship there, to curse God or to worship there. So, what my hope for this church is, is that we be a church that wherever we are, we worship from that place. Um, 
Worship where God has you this morning, church. Paul is pleading with Jesus to take away the thorn, the messenger of Satan that he's sovereign over, right? And really what Paul's saying when he prays this, and it takes him three times to discover it, is Paul was underestimating the power of God's grace, and he was overestimating himself. We do that a lot, don't we? We do that a lot. It's because there's, I've said this before, but there's never a prayer that you've prayed that God hasn't heard. Never a prayer that you've prayed that God hasn't heard and answered. Think about that. And so when, when we keep praying, you know, sometimes it's, it's about the persistent widow prayer, right? But when we keep praying and God keeps giving us the same answer, we have to step back and say, okay, God, what is it that you want me, how do you want me to live in this moment in light of your answer to my request, in light of your, in light of your answer to my petition? And it's in those moments that we have an opportunity to make much of Jesus and to not underestimate the power of grace and God's strength in it and to not overestimate the power of ourselves and what we can do on our own. Because here's the equation. If you're a math person, this is what Paul's saying, 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10, that it's, that it's our weakness plus God's grace in Jesus equals all sufficient kingdom power in any and every circumstance. You take away your weakness, that means you don't get to experience God's power. You take away God's grace, you experience an overwhelming burden on your life. You put the two together and you experience power. The word for power here is this word dynamite, right? Dunamis. And so we get to experience the power of God as we bring him the only thing that we have to offer, which is our weakness. It's our brokenness. And if, and if we could be a church like that, we'd be a church that would be dependent on the Spirit, that we'd be a prayerful church because only desperate people pray. Only people that are broken, only people that can't get it together pray. And, and that's the, you know, humbled by grace and depending on the Spirit. The language of dependence is prayer. And, um, and so I just want to share three things with you as we close here. Three characteristics of what I think a community that embraces weakness in, in a way that is a, fo a foundation for the kingdom of God to advance, what that would look like. The, the first characteristic would be this. It would be, be, be a community of people to be marked by humility. It'd be marked by humility. And a diagnostic for us at New City, we've said, okay, how, how, what, what, is the, what is the metric for humility? The metric for humility is this, is that no matter what situation you find yourself in, um, some, the humble person finds themselves being able to say, I wouldn't put it past myself to do the exact same thing. So you walk up on a situation and people are like, can you believe what she's wearing? Uh -uh. I mean, look at that over there. I mean, did you see what he did last week? Did you see that Twitter post? Oh my gosh. You know, whatever it is that you're thinking about and that these judgmental thoughts come up in your mind, the person who understands God's grace is able to say, I could see myself doing the exact same thing. On a different day, I could do the exact same thing. And the person that's able to say that understands what it means to be humble before the Lord. And this is why in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks you know, so vehemently against judgment because judgment shows that you don't get grace. And it, this, is the, this is a kingdom of grace. It's our, it's our currency, grace is, as the church. It's what holds us together. And so it keeps us tethered down. Second thing is this, we'd be not only a humble community, but a vulnerable community. A, a vulnerable community is, is a community in which you're able to say, I don't have anything to hide anymore. All my secrets have been found out. These people know everything about me. That's terrifying to us, isn't it? That's, even my, even my, oh, that's terrifying, right? But vulnerability is a mark of getting God's grace. 
Because you've got no posturing to do anymore. You can get off the treadmill of performance, right? You can get off the hamster wheel of trying to, you know, tidy up your life and, and, and airbrush it and make it look just right. You can get off of that thing and you can just be you because Jesus is your strength. Jesus is your, your, your power for living. You know, th- this was right after we had our, our fourth child. So we had, I think it was like five, three, one, and a newborn at this point. Uh, we had a new mom over to the house, or Megan did for a play date, and I overheard them talking in the kitchen, and this lady said, you know, Megan, she, she had a brand new baby. She said, I just don't know how you do it, you know? And, um, and Megan, without missing a beat, said, like, like, I don't, like, seriously, Sonia, like, I don't do it. Like, it, it is, it's the Lord through me. And it wasn't like one of those, like, like Jesus jukes, like, ha I gotcha. It wasn't one of those. It wasn't like a cheesy bumper sticker or anything. It was a genuine, like, profession of faith. Like, I, I don't do this. I don't know how to do this. And the thing that was just amazing to me in that moment, it was, it was, it was the fact that Megan, Megan could have showed her, she could have showed her the law, so to speak, right? You know what I mean by that? Like, she could have showed her the rigorous schedule that we keep, the naps, the, the feedings, you know, the diaper changes. She could have showed you her, you know, her husband who's a bag full of needs as well. She could have showed you all of those things. But she chose, this, she chose this, to share grace in that moment. How many times do we extend grace and, and the, the person of Jesus instead of ourselves in those moments? Because I think there's something inside of us that just wants to be awesome. The problem is, is that when we're awesome, Jesus isn't. And the Lord wants to uproot that in us. And so we'd be a vulnerable community. The third thing is this, this is the last thing, that we would be a teachable community. And the diagnostic for am I teachable is, is really, the spectrum is this for us, is am I more curious or certain? When I walk into a, a, a discussion or a dialogue, do I always have the answer? Am I always shutting other people down who are in, you know, kind of believe different things or, 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 or live differently than me? Or am I more curious about their lives? And the reason why this is so crucial is that someone who is certain about everything is a liability to the mission of this church. You're not a, you're not a benefit. And the reason I say that is, and I'm not talking about doctrine, I'm not talking about, you know, good theology. I'm talking about you just assert yourself in every place and, and it's your way or the highway. You shut people down. It's because we fully expect for people to come to faith in this church. We fully expect for the people out there to be in here. We fully expect for them to have to work some things out and grow up in the faith, right? That's why we're here. That's why we moved downtown. And if we expect that, you got to understand that people are in formation, And we've got to extend grace as much as we possibly can as people grow up in the faith. We've got to be that church. We've got to be that church. You could ask yourself the question, when is the last time that I realized and confessed that I've really got a long way to go to be a mature follower of Jesus? That's a teachable person. That's what God's grace does to you. It makes makes you humble, makes you vulnerable, and it makes you teachable. My prayer is that we could... That, that not only would we be that church, but we would continue to become that as we grow in Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for, uh, for meeting us here this morning. Thank you for your word. Lord, we stand on it. It's all we got. And your spirit that makes your word come alive inside of us, it opens our ears, opens our hearts, makes these things um, really real in our minds and our hearts. Lord, I pray that your word uh, would, would have gone forth this morning as we've preached it, as we sang about it, 
uh, and we've prayed about it. And, and Lord, we pray that you'd penetrate our hearts to the point that it would lead us to repentance. That it would lead us to say, Lord, I need more of you. Make me weaker so that I can see your strength be displayed more and more and more in my life. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.